The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. Today on Government Matters, a pivot or a new plan for the United States Navy. What's the future of the 355 ship fleet? Two Navy experts tell you what the debate means and what the future holds. Congress may kill a top Pentagon job it created. An inside view of the future of the chief management officer. And a new era for human capital management. The tools agencies really need to get the job done. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Navy could cut its plan for what would have been a 355-ship fleet down to a 287-ship force. The debate isn't final, and the White House tells the Navy its final budget plan should combine manned and unmanned ships to get to 355 by 2030, 10 years from now. Dan Garay is senior vice president at the Lexington Institute. Michael O'Hanlon is senior fellow and director of research for foreign policy at the Brookings Institution. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What cuts is the Navy looking at here, and how realistic do you think these cuts are, Dan? Well, probably the most significant is they want to cut a number of the Arleigh Burke destroyers just as they're getting to the new modern version, the Flight 3, with a better radar and missiles and the rest, they want to cut back on that. That's quite significant they're for political as well as industrial base reasons. They want to cut one of the submarines out of the Block 5 by of the advanced uh, submarine uh, fleet. They want to cut or uh, scale back on the littoral combat ship, and they've said they want to cut back on uh, the frigate program as well. So you're talking about the majority of the major programs, Marine Corps is even talking about cutting back on the production of amphibious warfare ships. So somewhere in this thing, almost everybody gets cut. Michael O'Hanlon, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us this morning. What is your takeaway from these cuts and, and what the Navy is proposing, what the White House is telling the Navy it should consider and so forth? Well, thanks, gentlemen, and Happy New Year to you both and everybody out there. I think the first thing to say is, in addition to Dan's very important and good points about cuts to plans or to future production, we should take note that the number 287 ships is more or less where we are today. So in terms of future plans, we're talking about cuts. In terms of actual force structure, we're talking about accepting a steady state rather than the 20 to 25 percent increase the Navy had previously aspired to ever since the end of the Obama administration. This is not just a Trump plan. This is Obama-Trump. And now essentially accepting that growing force structure is going to be very hard in the future budget environment. And, you know, it might be surprising to hear that for people out there who are aware that the 2020 defense budget is now, or national defense budget is now $738 billion, which is on the high end of what was being considered a year or two ago. But uh, even though that's a you know, big increase relative to the latter Obama years, we're now looking at likely flat growth, regardless of who wins the presidential election in the fall. Um, Mr. Trump's own longer-term budget plans do not allow for any real budget growth. So we're sort of at the peak in all likelihood. And, and that means tough choices are going to be necessary. So I generally support this more modest uh, aspiration for what I think is a more fiscally realistic fleet, and also more emphasis on next generation systems rather than current generation systems. Mike, regarding those next gen systems, you told Defense News they put quality over quantity and innovation over tradition. What did you see in this that caused you to think that? 
Well, first of all, again, I'm, I'm always glad to be on with Dan because his technical knowledge is so good. And he points out we are cutting in the production plan some very good ships that are high tech in capability. I don't want to poo-poo an Arleigh Burke uh, class destroyer, for example. But I'm talking about large, uh, easily visible surface warfare ships versus robotics, uh, more undersea vehicles, unmanned systems, unmanned combat aerial vehicles flying off of carriers. That's sort of the main distinction I'm trying to get at here. And without denigrating the you know, existing kinds of technologies that we're still making, I would like to see the relative emphasis go more towards the next generation and also see the Navy have to make some tough and innovative choices about how it operates its fleet today. People say, well, the combatant commanders have an appetite for more ships than the Navy can provide. That's true, but combatant commanders always ask for more than anybody can provide. And it's not just, it's not always a good thing. It's sometimes better that they be forced to make tougher choices. So I don't totally uh, regret that. And one last quick point, I know we'll come back to it, but with the killing of General Soleimani, you know, that's the kind of covert or proxy warfare activity that I don't think the size of a U.S. Navy fleet has a whole lot of bearing upon. I think that's the sort of thing that happens as a result of intelligence, drones, manned aircraft, surge deployments, a lot of things that you can do at 287 or 355 ships. Dan, you told Defense News it sends a bit of a chill up my spine to hear that the Navy may be considering cutting a bird in the hand for a theoretical eagle down the road. What generates that response in you? From well, you? we're talking about really unknown systems at the moment. There's a theory about them. They've done a little bit of testing. We're years away of being able to know whether, in fact, you can develop operate, command and control, secure, all the rest, the kind of unmanned systems. What you have now is a very well thought out program for advanced ships that can be built, can be operated, can be commanded, can be integrated. And why you would at this point sort of leap ahead. The Navy budget, this new plan, is talking about cutting littoral combat ships. That was last year's or last decade's magical new system that was going to totally redo how the Navy was going to operate, right? We're going to have 50 of them, and they were going to have modular platforms and modular crews and all the rest. All that's fallen by the wayside. We're now into a new frigate production. Why would you want to do that again to the Navy when, in fact, it's on a course to actually build capable, proven ships. All right, about that, you said that almost never works. You left an out. What would it take in 30 seconds or a minute to make that work, Dan? Well, you'd really have to slow this down and demonstrate this. You have to actually put a number of these ships out. You have to operate them, not for one season, but for a number of years, take them back into dry dock, see if they can be repaired, see what that means in terms of manning. How are you going to command those things in, a, in an environment in which electronic warfare or cyber warfare cuts your command and control to those exact unmanned ships. Mike, final thought, what will you watch as this plays out to see exactly what Congress wants to do? I think it'll be interesting to see if Congress prioritizes what I would call the more higher tech systems in the current uh, building plan. I would put the Arleigh Burke destroyer and submarines in that category. And as Dan pointed out, the littoral combat ship was much ballyhooed, but probably hasn't turned out to be quite as impressive as many hoped. That's the sort of thing that I have no particular qualms about seeing that program plateaued or, or reduced compared to what aspirations had been. But I would look to submarines in particular and probably the Arleigh Burke class destroyer second, uh, and then unmanned combat aerial vehicles flying off carriers as my uh, top three priorities for things that we sort of know how to do 
now uh, that the, the UCAV is in a somewhat different category. But uh, those are the things that I would hope Congress would be more inclined to protect if it's going to protect part of the previous shipbuilding plan. Michael O'Hanlon, Dan Garay, thanks both very much for joining me. Up next, Congress wants to eliminate a Pentagon job it only created three years ago. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's next for the job and the office of the Chief Management Officer? You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. Chief Management Officer of the Defense Department is the third highest official in the agency, according to the legislation that created the office. The new National Defense Authorization Act launches a set of studies from the Office of the Secretary of Defense and the Defense Business Board to determine whether the position is functioning correctly. And the language in the NDAA makes it clear Congress is leaning toward getting rid of the office it created. David Berteau's president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Logistics and Materiel Readiness. Peter Levine is Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Defense Analyses and former Acting Deputy Chief Management Officer. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Peter, you were involved with the writing of the legislation that created this office when you were on the Hill. Give me kind of the evolution of how we've gotten to where we are today. Well, the office was created, I think, out of a frustration with problems that we were seeing with defense management. And actually, uh, in the early 2000s, we went through a series of problems with, with uh, new defense business systems, IT systems people were trying to, trying to buy. There was a, a belief at, at that point that um, technology could solve our management problems. And, and so the acquisition people were brought in to buy these new business systems. They flopped one after another. And it turned out that the big problem was you can't just buy a new a new IT system, you have to reform your business practices. And the acquisition guys couldn't tell the people who manage, manage the processes, here's how you have to change it. So the idea was we needed somebody who was in charge of management who could exercise that discipline so you do the business process re-engineering. And somebody who had the autonomy and had the juice to be able to say to the rest of the department, this is how we're going to do it, right? That was the idea. It worked fairly well in the military departments where we have uh, chief management officers who have been relatively effective at doing that. It's been much less effective at the department-wide level it, for the DOD chief management officer. Is that your sense too, David? And if so, why has the, the CMO office not fulfilled the potential that Congress thought it had? Well, if you use the definition of successful aligned with what Peter said, you know, the legislation was aimed to do, bring some discipline, centralized discipline in the process, is a couple of interesting things have happened. One is, just as you're centralizing, or the law is centralizing authority at the chief management officer, it is decentralizing authority, of course, much of the rest of the Department of Defense, from the Office of the Secretary of Defense out to the military departments. So that created a dichotomy that was, I think, unanticipated and actually undermined the potential effectiveness of the position. In the end, though, resources and resource controls and definitions of what your requirements are of what drives this, and nobody ever envisioned that the CMO would be in charge of that. In DOD, those things, requirements, resources, and management, tend to come together only at the secretary and the deputy secretary of defense. The challenge here that it seems to me is more difficult for OSD is this is another major shift. Each of the NDAAs for the last five, six years at least has included major structural reforms to the Office of the Secretary of Defense. The biggest one was a couple of years ago when they devolved the acquisition technology and logistics job. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that the big problem is at what point is OSD able to take a break from all of the reforms and 
be able to decide and demonstrate what's actually worked. The, the department has been overloaded yeah. by the reorganizations. I think you saw that with acquisition technology and logistics where the, where the department had to spend basically a year coping with the reorganization and, and any reforms and changes, policy changes came to a halt while mm -hmm. they were working on that. And so yes, you're absolutely right. I think the, depart the department and Congress need to consider that impact of, of constant reorganization on, on, on but, but here's the important thing though. You know, nobody disputes the fact that somewhere in the Defense Department there are efficiencies to be gained from better management. Mm -hmm. $738 billion, there's going to be some room for efficiencies in there. The question is, what results are you actually looking for? How are you going to define and measure those results, whether it's through internal people doing the work or using contractors to do the work? And then how are you going to perform so that you achieve that? That's independent of the org structure. The extent to which the org structure distracts you from focusing on what do I need, how do I get it, how do I execute it, it's a negative rather than a positive. Well, and I understand that's the nuance, that the, the, given the, the expediency with which the department's trying to execute the national right. defense strategy, you don't want to wait too long to determine that the structure that we have now is not the structure that's going to help us do that. But I also wonder how soon you can determine, one can determine, we're getting out of this what we're so, getting out of it or we're not. So I think there, there's, been, there's been a problem since the inception of the chief management office with a gap between expectations and what the office can actually do. The mm -hmm. resources of the office are actually fairly limited. There are about 100 people. Most of them have routine jobs, keeping the lights on and the paper flowing in the Pentagon. There are really only about five or six people who are actually dedicated to management reform in the office. Um, my successors were put in the unfortunate position where they were expected to reform IT management, financial management, acquisition management, logistics management, healthcare management, personnel management, all at the same time. They had that, that resource of five or six people and they were given a few months to come up with billions and billions of dollars. I don't think any of us should be surprised. I mean, the department has spent decades trying to work on these problems and, and, and to expect a, a small office like that to make big change in, in that kind of short period was not reasonable. We can pick and pick and pick about what Congress did or didn't do what they expect or don't expect. What's the solution? What what does the structure look like to operate correctly to do the ultimate goal, which is to deliver on the national defense strategy? The key part of the solution starts with actually the reform in Goldwater-Nichols in 1986, which said that the Office of the Secretary of Defense is in fact an extension of the Secretary's authority, direction, control over the entire department rather than just another plaintiff at the table. So the key structural reform has to be that the secretary is using the Office of the Secretary of Defense in the way in which it was intended. What do you see, Peter? I, I, so I think Dave is right that, that to be effective, a management officer needs to be closely aligned with the Secretary of Defense. I would point to two other things. One is that you need to have a, a limited appetite. If you try to reform everything at the same time, you're going to get nothing done. And two is I think that, that the office would be most effective if it had an, an attitude of providing value rather than an attitude of trying to manage by fiat. There are too many people who are involved in, in the management of the Department of Defense for a single office, regardless of where it's placed, to be able to manage that by fiat. So I would, so a couple things. One is um, uh, cross-functional teams are good, but only if there are few enough of them. And two is working as an internal management consultant, providing advice and assistance to, to senior officials who want to streamline their processes. Right. Those are places where this office could, provi could provide value. Peter Levine, David Berteau, we're out of time. Thanks both very much. Up next, a new year and a fresh start for managing the government's people. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the tools human capital pros need in 2020 to get the job done. You're watching ABC7. I'll be right back.
Welcome back. The National Academy of Public Administration will examine the structure and mission of the Office of Personnel Management and make recommendations about how it should work, what it should do, and where it should live. The new National Defense Authorization Act put a pause on the merger between OPM and the General Services Administration. Dr. Jeff Pons, former director of OPM and former chief human capital officer at the Department of Energy. He's senior advisor and consultant at Big Sky Associates now. Jeff, welcome back. It's great to have you back. Thank you. Happy New Year. What are the most important things that HR professionals at the agency level need from some organization mm -hmm. at, that works across the government enterprise? Just like most organizations, I think HR needs to work anywhere. You need to make sure that you have the hiring policies, the recruitment, retention, the different types of policies that run HR effectively and efficiently. It follows the mission of the organization. It supports the leadership team. It makes sure that management can manage well. Um, and in, in HR and the organizations, it, it can't be an impediment to getting the mission done. And that sometimes the bureaucracy of how we operate and haven't revised the rules have hindered that. New year, fresh start, we're going to clean the slate mm -hmm. and, and look forward to a lot of progress in 2020. What would you like to see agencies have access to? What would you like to see agencies do? In order, What would you like to see maybe Congress help the agencies sure. do in order to build the workforce as strongly as it needs to be built in the new year? Sure, so we have a new decade. It's a great time to reflect. Um, take a look at what we've done in the last 40, 50 years of the civil service and take a look at what we're going to do in the next 40 or 50 years. So it's a great reflection point. Uh, what do we need to do in terms of updating our systems and just keeping up? But also, how should we design the civil service for the next uh, four, five, six decades? Now, I find that our systems are very antiquated, mm -hmm. and everybody admits it. Everybody in every single administration has said it's not working. The GS system simply is, is out of date. Um, different types of organizations and management practices with hiring flexibilities that total in the hundreds uh, confluence the problem. We have a balkanized way of managing personnel. So, why do we have so much com complexity and how do we do things? Well, in order to get things done in the government, you have two schools of thoughts, and I know you've debated this. It's do we do this uh, incrementally or uh, really have a large-scale type, what's the reform look like? Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, a time to actually take a look at the big picture and do it incrementally, peel off things, but you have to put those ideas out there. What is the system supposed to do? Are we supposed to incent people for staying there in a long time? Do we have to have a retirement system that has to you know, have people stay for 30, 40 years in order for them to get a pension at the end? So these are the fundamental questions on what HR should be supporting. Um, so the design of an HR system should be really much more robust and take a look at some of the things. And we, we really take a look at them through hiring flexibilities, what the structure of the pay scales are, what the benefits are. But those are you know very incremental things. Put the ideas out there. Work with Congress. Work, work with good government groups like NAPA, IDA, Partnership for Public Service, and really have that debate. 
There's organizations that have been debating this for quite some time, the Volcker Alliance and other organizations like that. And as soon as we get these ideas out there, we should be working towards those things. You mentioned the hiring authorities, and it strikes me there's a parallel there in the acquisition community where there are things like uh, the other transaction authorities that the mm -hmm. Defense Department uses essentially to get around the traditional acquisition structure. Hiring authorities strike me as a mechanism to get around the traditional hiring process, Absolutely. and yet we see Angie Bailey, the mm -hmm. Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security, saying mm -hmm. in a congressional hearing, please no more hiring authorities. Yeah. Stop with the hiring authorities sure. because they're creating more of a challenge mm -hmm. to get people than they were originally intended. Is, what does that say to you when you see somebody like that, so highly respected, so experienced, sure. say, please don't do this anymore? Um, it's a system thing. Uh, she operates a large system. Uh, the organization in DHS has so many different appropriations committees trying to do the right things, but what they do is add complexity to our already complex system with different types of hiring flexibilities. So she's dealing with many, many years of different hiring flexibilities, and she's trying to manage the whole entire DHS mm -hmm. as one. Um, the whole entire government, if you take the totality of all of these different flexibilities, it's the haves and have-nots. It's the appropriations committees that really want to do some good work for these agencies and want to give them the hiring flexibilities that they have asked for, but the whole entire system hasn't asked for certain things. So you have to have a compromise. You have to have a clearinghouse of what are the jobs that should be universally across. So agencies should work towards more joint duty type of assignments, make sure that they can have announcement that go across different agencies so you can grab from the same certification um, on different types of uh, job announcements, but you can work across different agencies for it. Cyber, for instance, you should have a overall announcement for cyber and people can choose from a whole entire list of people that the government chooses versus one agency at a time. We have less than 30 seconds sure. left, Jeff. Who has to do what? to fulfill that vision that you just laid out? Currently, OPM has to play its role in policy. I think there's a bigger argument on where should organizations go for HR policy. They're looking at different agencies. They're looking at, at OPM. They're looking at OMB. It's confusing out there. Jeff Pond, great to have you. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get, get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, give our listeners some best practices for achieving a consistent security posture in the public cloud. Absolutely. So in public cloud, we have many different cloud providers. They have different security controls and mechanisms. To be able to control those in a single agency, we want to be able to gain visibility into your assets, your inventory, and your cloud environments, those different components, if you will. 
using Checkpoint Dome 9, this allows us to assess and gain visibility across all of your cloud environment and their controls. It also allows us to run some quick remediations against the NIST policies to make sure you're compliant and easily report on those so you know exactly where you're at to start with. Uh, Jeremy, he touched on this a little bit, but what about regulatory compliance challenges here? What do you see as potential hurdles? Well, it is a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's at the forefront of most of the conversations we have today. Not only do you need to ensure compliance of your internal security policies, but you also have to meet those regulatory compliance standards, like Sean mentioned with NEST or PII. With Checkpoint's Dome 9 solution, we have a full inventory of your environment and how everything is configured already, so it's simple for us to go ahead and provide NIST compliance rule sets, for example, right out of the box. Our experts will keep those rules up to date for you, and you can simply run your assessment on your cloud platforms, and it provides you the full audit-ready report. Okay, so Sean, let's talk remediation. How should these agencies respond if they, say, fail a compliance assessment? Yeah, there's really two ways to approach that. One, take the report in Dome 9 and use the step-by-step -step directions provided, so the just-in-time education, to correct those findings. Or two, leverage the technology to do auto-remediation. So as soon as you make misconfigurations or skip something, it'll take the actions to correct that. And lastly, the tamper protection capabilities really protect your administrators and those privileged accounts so that third-party hackers can't get access to those and masquerade as them in the public cloud. So again, use the reporting, the auto-remediation, and the tamper protection to protect yourselves. Great information. Sean, Jeremy, thanks for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.